This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited to be speaking to Hetty Judah about her book titled Lapidarium, The Secret Lives of Stones, um, just out in 2022 from Penguin. Um, This is a very cool book. It's also a very shiny book, a very pretty book. This is definitely one I'd recommend people to look up what it looks like um, during our conversation. And it's really a collection of stories about 60 different stones. Um, And these are true stories, very interesting stories from a whole range of places and times um, that tell us a lot about stones, some of which we might know already, diamonds, sapphires, um, and some much less frequently known about and yet incredibly compelling um, and very clearly important stones. So I'm very pleased to kind of have this book to explore the known and the unknown together in this beautiful way. So Hedy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about your book. Miranda, thank you so much for having me. Could you maybe start us off, give us a bit of foundation and introduce yourself and kind of why this book? Well, I like the use of the word foundation there in that context. <laughs> it's very appropriate. Um, so yeah, so this is um, on on kind of a superficial level, a really, really strange book for me to have written. I'm an art critic. Um, I'm particularly actually associated with, um, I guess, uh, kind of feminist art art history um, and campaigning work around kind of those kinds of subject. But I um, spent an awful lot of time obviously looking at art and speaking to artists. And I've really noticed over the last few years that there's been what I think we could term a geological turn in the art world. There are lots of artists who have become particularly interested in um, ideas like deep time, um, who have been become very interested in uh, the minerals that make up the world. And of course, this is a very old concern for artists because of course, um, you know, paints would uh, kind of originally have been made out of ground minerals. Um, and of course, many sculptors have been working with stone for, you know, like going back to the dawn of time. These are the, these are our earliest art materials. Um, and there are also artists who become interested in stone, for example, as an expression of power. Of course, uh, you know, I think as many, many different subjects, there have been lots of um, there's been lots of work recently exploring the expression of power, whether that's to do with colony and empire or, or extractive industries. And so, the, all of these um, lines of inquiry really seem to coalesce on the idea of, you know, on this um, this kind of group of materials that. In a very rough and slightly, um, uh, slightly overly informal way, perhaps I've grouped under the title of stones. So there are there are certainly substances in the book that people might argue aren't specifically stone, but I'm going to kind of put all of this stony stuff under the same um, under the same umbrella. So really, it was by listening to and looking at the work of these artists that I started to think about the subject. And you know, when we talk about the art world, certainly um, 
writers like myself, you know, we, we tend to get very used to using phrases like avant-garde and we really kind of forget what that indicates. And to me, it's, you know, it's really worth remembering that actually avant-garde tends to mean that artists and these creative people with very, very interesting minds are often looking at ideas or asking questions um, that are very, very relevant to our present moment, but far um, ahead, really, of, um, of the rest of the population. Um, so my general feeling with artists is that they tend to kind of be on a subject far before I, I kind of see it becoming general currency. So, I mean, for example, there were, there were artists making work about the Anthropocene. And, and that, the first time I really heard the phrase, the, the term the Anthropocene was, I guess, about 15 years ago, and it was you know, in the context of artworks. And so my hunch really is that this idea in deep time in geology is something that's um, of great interest to the art world at the moment. But I think it's very much um, an, an interest that's sliding perhaps into the kind of wider discourse. And I think perhaps also because um, in a moment of climate catastrophe, I'd say people are finding, I mean, I think comfort's possibly the wrong word, but I think taking this much longer view of things um, has made it easier for some people to get their, their heads around things like climate change and climate catastrophe. Very interesting reasons um, going into this book. Thank you for explaining them and kind of inviting us into uh, that process to begin the conversation. Um, and you actually kind of already mentioned something that I'm very curious to learn more about, which is uh, the book talks about 60 stones and they're in these kind of groups that you mentioned. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of things you could have put into the book. I think probably one of the hard parts um, was organizing it. So can you tell us a bit about kind of how did you choose these 60 and how did you think about how to group them? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, well, I mean, there are, there are, there's a kind of like a super nerdy technical answer to that. And then mm. I guess there's, um, <laughs> then I guess there are more poetic ways of answering that. So really when I, when I first started, I mean, this is, this is the kind of like the nerdy writerly answer to it. When I first started researching the book, I just had a huge bank of, um, of note cards. And every time something interesting came up, I'd start a new note card on that particular stone. And then as more material came up in different, um, things that I was reading I'd kind of add to that and once I got a critical mass I'd kind of look at it and think well can I you know are these things working together or are they just disparate facts because of what I didn't really want to do was have a book of like here are 20 top facts about sapphire because that's not interesting and actually I want to kind of go back to the the language that we used to talk about this book Miranda because as you mentioned this is a book from a it's from a mainstream publisher it's put out by Penguin in the States and over here by John Murray's, which is actually a, a very, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a publishing house with an extraordinary publishing history. It put out some of the very early geology books. Um, but it's very interesting that the publishers have referred to this as a storybook and they absolutely have not referred to it as a book of essays because I think they perhaps think that people will be put off by the use mm. of the word essays, but I would definitely see it as a book of essays myself. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you know, you, if you're writing an essay, you want it to have a satisfying shape and you want it to not just be um, conveying information, but you want it to have a point of view and it, you want it to have themes that run through it. So really the idea wasn't that I was simply looking for lots and lots of top interesting things about each stone, but I was looking for a really good story or a set of stories that I could pull together to illustrate a particular theme around each stone. Um, you know, so for example, you could have a story that was um, specifically about, for example, granites about um, deer stones on the Eurasian steppe. 
But in a way, for me, that was a story not simply about granite. It was to do with the way that the acceleration of human movement um, demanded a new kind of monument to be built because suddenly if you're moving through the landscape at speed, you needed to have, you know, great big um, vertical monuments that you could see from a distance. And it was going to be a way that helped you, map, you know, find your way to, to navigate around this, this enormous landscape that you could suddenly get through at speed because you had domesticated the horse and you were, well, we don't know actually whether people started um, riding on horseback or, or using horse-drawn vehicles first, but you were certainly suddenly moving at speed through a landscape and you needed new ways to navigate it. Um, so, so really the way that I started to work out, I mean, there was definitely, I think, a, you know, you have to work within the limitations of what you can do in the time available. I think, as you say, I, this book could have been double the size. And and one of the things that's really fascinating about this subject is that when I, whenever I talk about it, whenever I lecture about it, I get somebody coming up afterwards going, do you know about these concretions that are found on you know the shores of Lake Superior and that are considered to to have Manitou, the special kind of um, special spirit by the Ojibwe people. And, and I'll, I'll say, no, I'd never heard of that. I had, not, I, I had no idea about the story. And there, there is a kind of universe more of stories that I could be writing about this subject. But this, I guess these were really the 60 most compelling um, stories that kind of came up through the research that I was doing, but I, I could quite easily do a whole other volume. And I guess also one thing that... Um, one thing that was a kind of constraining factor was the the format of the book, which is that it's um, a book of stories, and each story is led by a specific variety of stone, um, which then means that you can't, for example, write an essay about pebbles, which I would love to do. Um, I've actually just written an essay for an artist about pebbles, but I mean, it's a very fascinating subject, uh, both culturally and geologically, um, or gravel or sand or silt or boulders. And so in fact, there were all kinds of wonderful stories that I that I came across that I couldn't include because of the format of the book. So that that imply, um, Im imposed its own, I guess, um, constraints. And a constraint is not necessarily a bad thing in this instance. I think having a constraint on what you can include in a book can sometimes be extremely healthy. Mm. And how, so that I think is really helpful for understanding um, I love the idea of the index cards and kind of seeing what comes up with that. Um, sort of how almost the idea of kind of leading with what's compelling or being drawn by what's compelling and what's making the bigger point. Um, and I think that, that some of those kind of obviously go together, right? Looking at these themes, stones and power, sacred stones, okay. But then there's some themes I'm, I'm you know, how do you come up with stones and stories and which ones go in there or shapes in stones or living stones? You know, how, how do you, I guess, go from the story for this particular stone to the broader point, but then to kind of group them together? Surely there's, you know, speaking of constraints, there's so many ways they could be grouped together. How did you um, land on these particular ones? Absolutely. So I guess in a way, the groupings, are less important than the themes because there are many different mm. ways that I probably could have grouped these stories around the themes. But the themes are very important. And um, stories was actually one of the first ones that um, came up. And I think there is another version of this book that could entirely have been looking at stones and storytelling because what becomes fascinating very quickly is um, not only that geology is a storytelling science, you know, you're, you, you have 
you know, you have quite scant evidence often, and you have to piece together the story of these past realms through small bits of evidence. So you have to have a bit of a, po a poet's mind, I think, to be a geologist. Um, but that also these um, remnants of past worlds, of past civilizations, have stimulated storytelling over, you know, as long as we've had stories, stones have been part of our stories. Um, and in part, that's, you know, when we come across remnants of um, past civilizations, you know, in times when it was inconceivable that to us that there were there were different kinds of human civilization that preceded us. So finding things like stone axe heads or uh, arrowheads, they've stimulated all kinds of storytelling. So in Northern Europe, they were known as... Um, thunderstones, axe heads, and the idea was they came down from the heavens in thunder. And if we think about the kind of iconography of deities that we have around Northern Europe, so, you know, you have Thor with his, his great axe. And, yeah, and this is, you know, this is what's coming down from the thunder of these axe heads, these stone axe heads. And they're also, they were also incredibly precious and, and valued as objects in the ancient kingdom of Benin. Um, and arrow, arrow, splint arrowheads were um, <clears throat> referred to as elf shot, and they were, it was thought that they were kind of fired into, for example, cattle um, by mischievous spirits. Um, and then we also look at, you know, these great monuments that we have, like Stonehenge, and we have no idea, really. We, we can't go back to the minds of the people that created, constructed Stonehenge. But for me, it was extraordinary that Stonehenge enters British literature in the same moment as Merlin. Um, uh, you know, so the idea was that Merlin... Um, brought Stonehenge, which was an existing monument that was theoretically um, in Ireland constructed by giants from Africa. And he used his art to bring Stonehenge to uh, Salisbury Plain as a monument to the, the kind of noble fallen in battle. Um, so there's, there's this extraordinary heritage of storytelling connected to stone, but not simply human artifacts, but obviously, of course, natural phenomena. So when you, you know, when we see these extraordinary kind of eroded needles or, you know, I'm sure we've all been out on a walk and we've seen a kind of like a, a, a stone in the landscape that looks like it could be a, you know, petrified troll um, or, or, or a body twisting to escape. And so suddenly these legends of the Gorgons, these legends of, Medu you know, like Medusa, this idea of a, a gaze that petrifies becomes absolutely understandable because how do you explain this kind of this stone body that you find in the landscape. Well, of course, there must have been a monster that could turn human flesh to stone with its gaze. Um, and you go to the top of a mountain and you find shells and evidence of fish in, uh, in stone on the top of the mountain. So you start to ask how that got there and you start to develop um, stories of a great deluge that covered the earth so that of course, if the waters rose up, there would have been fish above the top of this mountain. And what you see there is going to be the remnants of, of the flood. So there's, I think there's just an absolutely extraordinary heritage of storytelling around, you know, stony objects. Um, so as I say, you know, so I could have grouped the book in a number of different ways. And of course, I think probably for each story, there were, there were two different groupings I could have put each one on to, into. Um, but I thought it, they were very, very important themes. And I'll, I'll touch on it a bit later, but um, the title of the book, The Secret Li Lapidarium, The Secret Lives of Stones, kind of hints to what for me became really one of the most important themes in the book, which is this idea of life. And the, the idea that we see stone as being the kind of counterpoint to life, that when we talk about 
um, stone, it becomes this kind of metaphor that we use to express death and the inert and the opposite of life. But actually, they're not two separate things. They're incredibly intertwined. But we will get onto that later. Well, in fact, why not get onto it now? You've given us such a perfect <laughs> opening for it. So would you like to tell us more about this idea of stones and life and death? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I, I, I mean, I come into it in the book in, in, through a number of different um, stories. One thing that I find very striking is also this idea that we think of stone as something incredibly slow. Um, and I wanted to illustrate the fact that actually stone can also form quite fast. And in fact, stone's if you are very unfortunate, being formed right now by your own body. Um, so we, so in the story about um, uh, calculi, which are human stones, um, we encounter one of my, actually one of my favourites, um, my favourite characters in the book, a crystallographer called Kathleen Nonsdale, who was, I think she must have been an absolute genius. She was a fascinating character. Um, she was a brilliant um a brilliant crystallographer, but she also was a great humanitarian and prison reformer and a pacifist. Um, and she was approached um, late in life by uh, somebody from, I think, from the, S the Salvation Army who'd become very interested in the um, the occurrence of uh, kidney stones uh, am amongst children in India and wanted to find out why it was so prevalent. So she started to explore um, the, uh, you know, why, how and why stones form inside human body. So that's kind of, you know, one way in which I look at stones and life being very intertwined. But I also, you know, then you then start to look at the, the makeup of various different kinds of stone. And there are certain stones. I mean, if you walk in, you know, as, as I think many of us have in school field trips in, in the UK, certainly, uh, along the shore at Lyme Regis, and you're looking up at this formation called the Blue Lias, you know, you've got this great kind of rather greasy, grey stone in layers, which essentially, I mean, it's, there's a lot of, well, I mean, for want of a better word, there's a lot of poo in that stone. Um, you know, we, we refer to things as being kind of mudstone quite politely, but a lot of these stones will have at some point passed through the digestive system of one or other creature, however tiny. Um, and obviously we've got a lot of fossils in that stone as well. So a lot of that stone is made up of material that was once animal, that all that passed through animal, all that was somehow living that was kind of bacterial. Um and, you know, even these kind of very respectable looking stones like, um, you know, like limestone, you know, or this, you know, that the kind of pure white of chalk, the, these have, you know, this is made up of material that was once part of a living creature. Um, but one of the things, I mean, we, you asked um, in the questions you sent over before what the, the stone I found most interesting was. And I was going to say that actually um, it's not so much a stone, but it's a theory that I was was developed in, or proposed in 2008 um, by uh, an American scientist called Robert. I think, I don't know how you pronounce it, actually. I'm terribly bad at pronouncing people's names. I guess in an American way, you call him Robert Hazan, um, but it may be Hazen. I don't know. Mm. Um, I've read quite a lot of his work, but I don't actually know how to pronounce his name. Um, but he um, proposed a theory called mineral evolution, and he worked with a theme, uh, sorry, a team that were was looking at how minerals have changed over the course of Earth's history. And he proposed the idea that when the Earth was formed, there were about 12 kind of ur minerals that made up early Earth. And that, that has, they've kind of, I'm, I'm not going to use a kind of biological word like bread, but they flourished and transformed enormously over the past um, four and a half, you know, 4.5 billion years. So today they're about um, just over 5,000 different kinds of mineral minerals. Um, and the great, 
really the great turning point in mineral diversity was the was the great oxygenation event um, about uh, two and a half billion years ago when um, uh, cyanobacteria started photosynthesizing and suddenly you had this suddenly you had this oxygen rich atmosphere and all of this oxygen really transformed the, the mineral makeup of earth so the I think the minerals kind of proliferated from being about one and a half thousand varieties of minerals to about four thousand varieties but what's extraordinary is that that you know the proliferation has continued and it's really accelerated um, you know in the Anthropocene so there's I mean I obviously we're on the radio so I can't show it but when I talk about the book there's this graph that's really quite disturbing but it um on the one side you can see the um the, the acceleration of um uh, extinction species extinction and very much a, the kind of the same curve on the other graph is the proliferation of new mineral type substances and by those we'd be talking about things that have kind of um naturally evolved due to human intervention so for example when we've gone into a mine because the mine's been opened up due to the um, introduction of um, of substances by human intervention that you know new minerals have evolved in the mine but also by you know new substances whether that's concrete or the kind of new things that we're putting into you know new technologies like mobile phones so this whole concept of mineral evolution i think is i mean it's it's quite you know it's it's quite mind-blowing but also very disturbing Hmm. Mm, fascinating definitely something that counts as most surprising in a research process to come across something like that and go hang on a second um so thank you for sharing that with us um at the risk of kind of making it slightly about me um (laughs) i obviously have read about all 60 stones and had rather a difficult job of trying to not just ask you about every single one in order. Uh, That would probably not be fun for you or the listeners, even though I might enjoy it. So I have gone through and tried to pick out just a few from that 60 to ask you um, a little bit more about in the hopes that perhaps um, the essay on the stone that kind of captured my interest might also be interesting to the listeners. Um, And obviously you've already told us a bit about kind of the ones that spoke to you. So this is equally biased these are kind of a few of the ones that spoke um to me or i thought might be of interest to others um so in no particular order could you tell us about um alum or alanite and what this particular stone how we can think about this in the context of like the history of the catholic church which yeah has lots of shiny pretty things but i admit didn't really think about in this particular context didn't expect to open this book and find some really interesting information about the history of the Catholic Church and clothing trends in Europe. Um, (laughs) I admit I was not really expecting that. So our listeners might not be either. Would you mind telling us a bit about that? For sure. Well, so this, um, I really started becoming interested in alum, which is not a phrase you hear very often. Um, When I was living in in Belgium, which was, I guess, about 15 years ago, and I used to work quite a lot with um, a few museums up in Antwerp which is a magnificent city and a a friend of mine curated a very interesting exhibition about the colour black Um, and it was bringing together uh, artefacts from the fashion museum the mode museum but also from the um, the I'm not going to attempt to say this word in Belgium the the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in uh, Mm. in Brussels sorry in Antwerp um, which has got a magnificent collection of paintings Um, 
and looking at the importance of black and black clothing um, historically in Belgium. And I started to research around this a bit. And um, it, Antwerp, Flanders, was an incredibly important site of production for black cloth. And uh, at a certain point, it was given the papal, the, the, the papal monopoly for alum in Northern Europe. And alum is tremendously important for dyeing. So it's, um, it's a mordant. Um, and a mordant, it comes from, it's a word that comes from mordere, which is, it, so it's, it's something that kind of bites, or it kind of, kind of bites into a substance that allows, and so it allows dye to take hold. So it's used in tanning, and it's used in dyeing cloth. So you can, if you, without a mordant, you can have the dye. I mean, we've probably all done a really bad dye job at home, and we tried to make our jeans go black or something. And you put the dye in with your with your garment and it just kind of comes out a slightly kind of washy rather pathetic color but the mordant allows the dye to take hold in the cloth so it gives it this really intense rich color um so if you're going to make kind of fine cloth you need to have a, a good mordant and alum was the good mordant that you needed um in the in the in the 15th or 16th century um so traditionally kind of i'm really going back a very very long time um uh, alum was processed and sold through Constantinople, which was also where there was this kind of obviously this hub point for what we think of as the Silk Road or the spice trade. And it was where Europe essentially came and they, it got its mordant for dyeing, but also its really powerful um, dye stuffs. Um, because obviously there are dye stuffs that flourish in certain climates and in certain conditions that couldn't be reproduced in Europe at that point. So uh, European traders, they'd go to Constantinople and they'd pick up indigo for very intense blue, which is a colour we associate with North Africa. Kermes, which uh, is for kind of like an intense kind of magenta pink red. Um, and actually in, in Turkish, Kermes is still the, is still the word for red. And saffron for kind of like a, an intense yellow or orange. And they'd also get their mordants at the same time. Um, so this became where, you know, if you wanted to have gorgeous, colourful clothing, you'd go to Constantinople and you'd get your dyes and you'd get your mordant at the same time. And then you could go back to Italy or you could go back to Flanders and you could dye your wool or your linen and produce gorgeously colourful clothing using um, those, those dye stuffs. So this all changed then in 1453 when Sultan II um took Constantinople. And so Constantinople was suddenly taken by a Muslim, became part of a Muslim empire. And the this kind of rankled with um, Italy and with Catholic Church. They didn't particularly want to be dependent on a Muslim empire for, you know, for, for their dye stuffs. And so people who had experience of dyeing in... Um, kind of you know in so i think the the the, the alum in in what is current present day turkey was kind of it was processed around smyrna which is present day izmir um and so they started to look for new sources of alum and a very kind of clever guy basically found basically recognized a stone um uh, a stone formation in about 70 kilometers away from um uh, rome and they started up this alum works just outside Rome. And so this became this incredible new source of wealth for the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church essentially adopted a European monopoly on alum. And it forbade um, European 
merchants from trading uh, in mordants and in dyes with Constantinople. So at around that time, you then start to get this kind of um, this word, well, this association uh, of color with color as colored cloth as being something tainted. So we take that word taint as meaning something that's dyed, but there's also this kind of moral, um, this moral overtone attached to it. So there's this taint of the East that's associated with coloured clothing. Um, and so you, when you get the kind of the great Catholic empires, like the great Catholic um, uh, kind of households, and the, you, they, they're very much associated with wearing rich black cloth because this is in accordance with the edicts of the Pope at that time. So if you think of Charles V of Spain or Philip II, they've got this gorgeously worked black cloth, which is using the alum that was provided by the Vatican. Um, and this was a lot of this was processed in Flanders, which became the kind of the, um, the kind of hub for well worked, richly worked um, black cloth. Then they they would use, I think, um, woad and rose madder, and they do it. But they, they needed the, the, the alum to get it to kind of fix well. Otherwise, it would have been, it kind of looks, um, it, it deteriorates very fast. Uh, so this was how this kind of, this, asso- this association between the Catholic Church and black clothing. But then it's quite interesting how the, 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 the black clothing was also adopted by the kind of godly Protestants of the Low Countries as well, because they had great wealth, but they didn't want to be showy and look like they had kind of um, flashy imported goods. And so they also had this gorgeously worked, these gorgeously worked black garments that you see, for example, in Rembrandt's um, paintings. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I always found that quite sort of amusing because, of course, the most Catholic king, right, Philip II, um, always in black. And then, you know, the Protestants denouncing him also yeah. in black. Also in black, yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, I think there's this, there's this wonderful list um, that was in the book that was looking at the kind of parlous state of the um, the English dyeing trade, the, the textile trade in England at the time, because they didn't, they, in England also, we wanted to have a source of alum because we realised quite fast, although we were selling lots of wool to Flanders to be processed, we would make a lot more money if we could process it ourselves in England. Um, but there's this really fantastic list of 16th century colours, which sounds so unappealing. So there's sheep's colour, motley, new sad colour, <laughs> puke, <laughs> devil in the hedge, peas porridge tawny, and my favourite, goose turd green. So you can see why, you know, this, this is without having an effective mordant. This is how kind of like this, this, the, the colours sound so drab. Um, and so once they, so in Britain, we did actually find a, a, a source of alum on the northeast coast and that really was the start of britain's important textile trade of kind mm. of like richly dyed wool which we then exported around the world to become you know suiting material mm-hmm. um and the gentleman's suits which britain's now well ha- was very very famous 
Well, thank you for um, explaining that one. I think listeners will probably understand why that one jumped out at me. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even get into the urine. I mean, that was... A, that I know, was a... <laughs> that was a whole extra element. So <laughs> listeners, if you want more, read the book. Um, but we've hopefully given you some sense of it. Um, and I'd love to continue kind of my geographic hopping around tour of uh, bits that jumped out at me. So we're going to move away from the Catholic Church in Europe and go all the way over to Hawaii. Um why are thousands of packages of stone and sand and glass sent to Hawaii by post every year? Well, now this is a very, very opposite day to be talking about this, Miranda, because I don't know if you saw, but um, Mauna Loa, the, I think the yes, largest active erupted. volcano in the world, has just erupted. And there was actually um, a warning put out by the government in Hawaii, um, a warning, a specific warning about the substance we're about to talk about, which is mm. Pele's hair. Um, and they said, you know, the air quality is going to deteriorate, so you need to be very on the guard for Pele's hair and for volcanic ash. Um, so, yes, yeah, so this came up in the story about Pele's hair. Um, and actually, this story really started from me being in the science museum. And there's a display that has Pele's hair in it, and it looks so sad. Um and I started thinking about how sad this stuff looked taken away. You know, it's a bit like when you pick up a pebble from the beach and it looks so glossy because it's all covered in water and minerals. And then you take it home and it loses its kind of its luster and its its vitality. And this thing of Pele's hair just looks like it's rather. It looks it's like well, it's a bit like when you have like a nasty old ponytail in a in a drawer or something in the science museum. Um, so there's. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to approach this from two different directions. The reason that there are uh, stones and bits of volcanic glass sent back to Hawaii every year addressed to Queen Pele is because there is a superstition that if you remove a material from the islands of Hawaii, that, that you will in- incur Pele's curse. Um, and they're sent back, many of them just addressed to, address to Queen Pele. I kind of, I mean, I put that in at the end because it's kind of quite funny, but there's for me, there's a bit of a kicker on that because I think there's mm. been, um, you know, it kind of, there's been this kind of cutification of, um, uh, let's say, of, of Hawaiian um, kind of origin stories, uh, which kind of then turns them into this kind of like, oh, cute, like, oh, Queen Pele is going to be crossy. You're going to invoke Pele's curse. And actually, you know, obviously there's a, there's a much harsher story behind it all, which was, you know, missionaries kind of coming and um, I mean, you know, Hawaiian language is banned in school in 1896. And these stories that were really like the foundation stories that explain the relationship between the people and the land were turned into like kids stories as opposed to being this kind of foundational expression of the relationship between people and the land that they that they were part of. Um, so Pele is the the volcano goddess, essentially, but she is she is Hawaii, so it's not just that she was the creator of Hawaii. She, she the, you know, this volcano is spewing her body. She is, the, she is the volcano. She is the island. So, and she and her kin, you know, they are this this group, this group of islands. Um, so, when you're taking Pele's hair, it actually is Pele's hair. It's not just a kind of a, a figure of speech. So, you're removing part of her body and part of the sacred mass of Pele from the island and taking it away. Um, so, Pele's hair itself. So, I've gone very backwards into that story but Pele's hair itself is a, vo- a volcanic glass so I mean la- volcanic lava has you know different makeups but in general it tends to be very rich in silica and when it cools very rapidly you get these these 
this glass forming. So that, that glass can take various different forms. So obsidian um, is a volcanic glass and it, and it forms glass because it cool, when it cools too fast to form crystals. Um, and Pele's hair essentially is what happens when, let's say, there's like a kind of bubble that pops or that you've got lava that's flying through the air and it goes through cooler air and you get these filaments. It's essentially if you're like, if you're making kind of spun sugar, uh, you get these filaments of glass that, that that are rapidly forming strings of high silicate lava. Um, and at uh, one end, you get what's called uh, Pele's tears. You get these little teardrops form- forming. But you also get these great long filaments. And they're very, very light and they get basically carried on the breeze. They get carried on the air. And they do look beautiful. They're kind of golden and glossy, but they are very fragile and they can get into kind of water supplies. You can breathe them and they can be very dangerous, in fact. Um, so the the chap, the essay about Pele's hair is looking at both the materials and the fact that we take much of our terminology around uh, around volcanoes actually from traditional Hawaiian terms and ways of describing lava, um, and also the um, I guess the the kind of creation stories, some of the creation stories uh, around the the Hawaiian Islands. Mm, thank you for um, introducing us to that history um, and its inclusion within the book. Um, now, moving, traveling further across the Pacific Ocean, if one wants to imagine this as a geographical journey, <laughs> um, which, you know, up to you if you feel like it, um, can you tell us about the ancient Chinese rules for judging stones? Sure. So this comes up in an essay called um, about Lingui, which is a kind of limestone, and it's a very um, beautiful and often very kind of tortured limestone that's in its that can that in its kind of finest expressions can either be white or kind of black with the white um veins running through it um and it's really a story about uh gongshi which are sometimes translated as scholars rocks but are perhaps more accurately referred to as spirit stones um and this is in the section of the book that looks at um shapes in stone i wanted to call it shapely stone um and it's trying to kind of blur the distinction between what we think of as an artwork, so a sculpted object that's created by the human hand, um, and kind of beauty in stone. And what's really interesting for me about Gongxi is that they are naturally occurring stone formations that were prized as artworks. And there have been such crazes historically for Gongxi that it's been akin to kind of tulip fever that we saw in the Netherlands. Um, there's been, you know, such petromania that people have almost kind of ruined themselves acquiring beautiful rock formations. Um, so the the rules, well, the, the guidelines for um, beauty in stone or excellence in a, in a, in a, in a spirit stone were laid out by um, a calligrapher called Mifu in the 11th century. And he suggested that a stone could be judged by shu, which is elegance. Lu, which is um, it's a term that suggests roots for the eye. So it's kind of different ways that you can, your eye can travel around it. Uh, tu, which are holes or perforations. And zu, which are wrinkles. So it's got all of this kind of texture going into it. And there are other kind of qualities that you can also use to judge a stone, which could um, include its kind of resemblance to mountain landscapes. And one which I really like, which is a quality of fascinating ugliness. Uh, and these stones, these stones um, 
would have been kind of larger earlier on and positioned outside in the garden in the landscape um but around uh in the, during the kind of the song dynasty so around i guess about a thousand years ago they started to kind of migrate indoors as 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 bureaucracy flourished and people were working more from a desk and so they were bringing beautifully shaped stones in little um holders into position on the desks and it would uh help them in contemplation of the natural world and of the of, of the, the great stone formations of China. Something to consider if anyone's looking for um, mindfulness things to improve their desks. Um, I think there's perhaps some interesting things that could be revived, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there, there are very few collections of them. I think during the Cultural Revolution, a lot of them basically got put outside and just went back to being stone so that they've been separated from their um from their holders there's a fact mm. i i spent ages trying to track down a collection of gongshi and eventually found one in of all places this um a family home that's a that's london's postmodernist masterpiece called cosmic house um designed by an architect called charles jenks and his wife was an expert on Chinese garden design and just by completely weird coincidence they had this extraordinary collection of gongshi in honestly the most unexpected place um but there have been there are a few in the Metropolitan Museum as art but it's again it's this interesting thing where museums don't know where to class where to position them because they don't want to position them in the art collection because they're naturally occurring formations but it's it then raises interesting questions about you know how we classify different classes of objects Mm, intriguing. Um, speaking of kind of how we think about theories, how we think about the role of stone, um, the next stone I want to ask you about has a deeply boring name, Old Red Sandstone. <laughs> That's pretty, I mean, I think everyone can kind of imagine in their head what that looks like. Um, and so I admit when I sort of turned to that page, I was kind of like, okay, all right, what have we got here? Um <laughs> But then I read the essay and was like, wait a second, we're talking about like genesis and evolution and all sorts of like big things and how it helped people rethink those theories. Um, so can you introduce us to the boring sounding, but not actually boring in reality, old red sandstone? I know, I know. Well, I, I mean, it's, I think it's probably even more boring looking than it sounds because it's not particularly <laughs> red either. Um, <laughs> um, so really, this is a story about how we came to understand the duration of the earth and that's a different kind of storytelling for me is that you know when we tell the story of our origins how far back do we imagine the earth going how far back do we imagine human existence going so there was um uh, in the mid um, 17th century there was uh, you know a churchman that basically decided on the exact date of creation which of course had to be a sunday because, uh, you know, the creation started in the Monday. So, um, you know, he had to, you know, the earth had to basically, like, the, the start of time had to be the night before. Mm. Um, so the, the exact um, day of creation was the 23rd of October in 4004 BC. So that meant that the earth was just under 6,000 years old. And this was generally accepted um, at the time. It was, so the idea was that that's, that's how long things have been going on for. So if you were then somebody that was starting to look at stone formations and you were starting to 
kind of be doing that kind of first bit of proto-geological exploration and you were interested in fossils, you somehow had to fit the whole of what you saw written into the rock into 6,000 years. So essentially you were imagining that kind of either everything happened all at once or if there was some transformation that the transformation happened not that long ago. Um, and so there were various bits of kind of gymnastics that were going on, like mental gymnastics that were going on where people were kind of going, well, yeah, so there was this kind of, you know, all of the the stone was formed in layers during this great primordial, in this great primordial ocean. And that's why we find these layers. And at certain points in the ocean, there were fish and that's why there were, there were you know, fish in some of the layers. And then that stopped. And then, then the earth is as it is today. Um, and essentially the, the, the kind of the big stopping point for the development of geological thought was the the idea that we had to kind of fit everything into the 6,000 years that we were allowed to have if it accorded with um, the kind of the, the, the book of Genesis with the creation stories of the Bible. Um, and of course, there were lots of kind of deep thinkers and curious people that were looking at the world around them going, yeah, I'm not sure that this all kind of fits together into that into that time frame and one of these guys that was having deep and uh and possibly i guess for the time quite you know sacrilegious thoughts was it was a a man called james hutton um and he uh he did many things but he i think among other things he had a farm in scotland and he observed um you know stone eroding and he observed silt being washed downstream and he started to think of um of erosion and and sedimentation and lithification not as something that happened at one point many you know many thousands of years ago but actually as a continuous process and he looked at the world around him and he thought well actually you know the the processes that made the stand the stone that i'm walking on are are still going on. This wasn't a one-time thing that stone was formed, that actually stone is still being eroded and forming. Um, And so he was really looking at the world around him for evidence that, yeah, that stones formed at different periods, that things were eroded, that they then reformed. And also he very much saw evidence for these huge upsets that had happened in, in, in kind of ancient history, the fact that, you know, kind of you know things have bubbled up and broken through and split and shoved things to the side and that there wasn't this kind of like smooth kind of set of sedimentary layers that was that were proposed you know by the um in the kind of um by net the neptunist um early geologists and so he and a group of friends who were he, he does sound like he was quite a kind of a an eccentric character, very compelling in the way he was talking about things, but I don't think he was particularly good at explaining his ideas in a, in a way that was understandable to lots of people. He and a group of friends, um, that's John Playfair, James Hall, basically sailed around this formation in in the southeast of Scotland called Sicker Point. And they found, what they found there was known by geologists now as Hutton's Unconformity. And it's essentially an underlying layer of a sedimentary stone called grey wacky which is about 430 million years old and it's basically been heaved up by the movement of the earth until its um, sedimentary layers are kind of sticking the wrong way and you can see that it's gone through millions of years of erosion and then over the top of that you have our friend the old red sandstone which is um, I guess 
about 370 million years old, lying on the top of this. And so what you can see is there's been a break in the stone record. And also there's been this huge movement that's happened in the earth. And in looking at this, Hutton and his friends essentially punch through this idea that the earth was only 6,000 years old. And suddenly there was this idea that, you know, stone was constantly being eroded and reformed and that there was this enormous history stretching back behind and in front of them. And I think it just must have been like the kind of, almost like the atmosphere, the bubble of the atmosphere bursting and suddenly this huge expanse of time opening up around them. So it really revolutionized the way that they saw the world and its history. Okay, that's pretty good for something that has a very boring name. You know, completely I'm going to have to break and let the dog out. I'm really sorry, Miranda, she's whining next to the back No door. worries, that's fine. Sorry. So that's a pretty good uh, thing to revolutionize if you've got a very boring name like Old Red Sandstone. <laughs> so thank you for um, sharing that with us. Um, I really just have sort of two final questions. Uh, one more stone and then um, a little one to wrap up. Um, so we've talked about kind of big topics and weighty things, but I do also have to ask about the stone that's like kryptonite. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted. I really wanted to get kryptonite into the book, and my editor was like, "It's not real." And I was like, "Well, yeah, but but because you know, if you're talking about stones and storytelling, you got to get kryptonite in there. I mean, that's a really big one." Um, and you know, I, I but I was also kind of fascinated by this. You know, when I was looking through my books of stones, there is this stone that really does look like kryptonite, and it's called moldavite, um, and it's actually a tektite. So it's um, a bit like Pele's hair. It's it's a kind of glass that was formed by, I mean probably like a massive impact that happened about 14 million years ago. Um, and it's really, it is green and it has this kind of like super spacey formation. So it comes in little pieces, but they do, I mean, uh, you know, if you were going to take one onto a film set and use it as kryptonite, it'd be very plausible. Uh, it's not quite, it's kind of poppy green. It's kind of more olivey, but it's, um, it's, it's pretty exciting looking. Um, and so I kind of use Moldavite as a way to talk about kryptonite, but we, you know, I, you know, I'm a writer, and there, there are all kinds of cliches out there that you tend to want to evolve. And there's, and kryptonite is kind of one of those cliches that people use in stories, to kind of go talk about kryptonite as, you know, it's the thing that brings you down. It's like your Achilles heel. But actually, if you're looking at kryptonite as, um, as a mechanism in storytelling, kryptonite does something quite different. So essentially, if you have Superman who is indomitable, what became evident very, very quickly is that actually there's a lack of real peril, there's a lack of real tension in the storytelling around Superman, because if nothing can beat him, he's going to win all the time. So you need to introduce a kind of like a, an element of chaos, a randomizing element that actually then brings drama to the stories of Superman. So that's actually what Kryptonite is. And what's really interesting about Moldavite is that it kind of brought drama into the world of TikTok during um, the pandemic. So essentially when nobody could really get out and do anything, there, there were um, all these young witches on TikTok that were getting massively into um, Moldavite, which was being treated as a crystal that had a kind of chaotic energy and there was a kind of like a I guess a bit of a kind of witch snobbery about it that you had to be really experienced to be able to control and deal with the power the chaotic power that came from Moldavite um, and there were there were all these little kind of TikTok videos of 
people talking about the freaky things that happen and sometimes it can be almost as if they've got a poltergeist in their in their flat and then there are also people that kind of said you know i split up with my boyfriend my stepfather died i lost my job and like all of these terrible things have happened and it's bringing this dark chaotic energy so it brings change but it brings chaotic change and it just is it was just too perfect the fact that this essentially became the kryptonite it became the chaotic drama that was required by TikTokers who, like comic book writers, need to keep people coming back for more. They need tension. So it, it became that kind of element during during um, the, the lockdown period for Witch Talk. I mean, that's interesting in and of itself, but I'm also just really pleased you found a way to get Kryptonite into the story. Yes! <laughs> So we've ended with kind of that stone, um, which really just leads me to my final question. Um, you, as you mentioned at the beginning, this is maybe a surprising book for you to write. And I know you do rather a lot of things. So is there, are there any other things that you're doing or anything you're doing next that you'd like listeners to be aware of or check out in addition to this book? Miranda, thank you very much for asking that question. As it happens, I've actually had two books out this autumn. So my the other book I had out was on a completely different subject. Uh, it's called How Not to Exclude Artists, Mothers and Other Parents. So that's the result of about three years um, study that I've done into the impact of motherhood on artist careers, which is dramatic. Uh, it turns out that the art world thinks it's terribly liberal and progressive, but it really isn't very. Um, and somewhat allied to that, I've just received a Society of Authors grant to work on my next book, which is uh, going to be a proper art historical study of art and motherhood. And I'm curating um, a Haywood Gallery touring exhibition on art and motherhood, which will open in early 2024. So please do stay tuned for that. And if anybody has an artist or an artist mother in their life that um, might be interested in in on art, um, yeah, how not to exclude artist mothers. It's one of those things where I think people, the the publisher thought it would be a very very niche book, and it's actually it's been it's been a massive hit. And I'm doing a kind of um a speaking tour around Europe with it in February, and I, I'm getting lots and lots of requests to talk about it, and it's actually sold quite well. So it turns out it's, um, it was a very very necessary subject to tackle. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's very exciting. So I'm glad that our listeners are aware of that in addition and can check that out. Um, and of course, they can read the book that we've mainly been talking about, um, Lapidarium, The Secret Lives of Stones, um, just out in John Murray or Penguin, depending on what country you are in. Um, Hedy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast and sharing these stories. Thank you so much, Miranda. Thank you in particular for your really close and interested reading the book. It's such a treat talking to somebody that's actually read the book and engaged with all the themes well thank you <laughs>